good to see each and every one back tonight. We're glad to have visitors among us. As always, we appreciate your coming to worship with us. This afternoon, I met with Sister Carol Felty, and she wanted to be restored and to have a prayer, and we did that this afternoon, and uh, she wanted to announce this evening at our services that she was restored this afternoon. Favorite passages. Two weeks ago tonight, I began a series of lessons, which will not necessarily be every Sunday evening, but for the foreseeable future, I would like for us to deal with these favorite passages on Sunday evenings. And at that time, I ask each of you to submit your favorite passage, and uh, I got a lot of cooperation. In fact, I have a full typed page of favorite verses, and what I found out is that many of you are like me. You have many favorite verses, and, uh, but we have a lot of opportunity to study some great passages from God's Word. And as I begin the series, I want to explore with you the idea of why some of these passages may be so favorite to us. Why, why do they attract us? Why do we go back to those same passages again and again? And some relate to issues with which we struggle in this life. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of problems. And when you start looking for the solution to problems, the best place to always go is the Bible. And when you go there, you will generally find a passage that deals with the situation that you find yourself in, and you can find some comfort, some strength, and some encouragement there. Some provide a goal or a motto for life. You know, Jesus said, I always do those things which please my Father. Or Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's so many of those passages which have some goals, some mottos for life to be lived. And then there's some that provide an example of a hero of faith. You know, I find myself wanting to see living Christianity in the life of individual people. It's so much easier for me to see a person and see how this character plays out in everyday life and the kind of challenges they face. And I find that in the characters of many of these people in the Bible, which leads me to the passage that I've chosen tonight as one of my favorites, and that's found in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And it's a very simple verse. And he, that is Abram or Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And what I would like for us to do in the lesson is to look at three things. I want us to look at a special man. Abraham is not ordinary. Abraham is extraordinary in many ways. Number two, he had a special trait about him. There was something unique about Abraham that separated him from the world of which he lived. And then number three, for us to look at the special reward that God offered Abraham and which he also offers us if we do what Abraham did. Let's begin with the looking at his life. And the first thing I want you to understand is that God chose Abraham 
out of the group of people who were living in his day to have a special role. And we'll have to understand that as we develop the lesson. But he said in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless him who blesses you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's something about what Abraham is going to do that will cause him to bless all the families of the earth. Now some of you are blessings. That is, what you do in this world encourages and helps people so much. There's some of you who visit elderly members. You're able to go to their home and sit down and talk with them. I visited with a man this afternoon. He described one of our men here, and he says, he is such a good man. He comes, and he'll stay about an hour with me, and he, he just encourages me so much. That person's life is a blessing. But do you realize that God said, and in you, and he's going to have to be a little more specific as we look later, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a special role that God has for him. And God not only had a special role for him, but he had a special place that he wanted to put him. In Acts 7, beginning with verse 2, Stephen is going to recount this situation. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to his land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it. No, not even enough to sit his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and for his descendants after him. Stephen is saying, you see where we are? God gave us this land. A special place to live. We sing the song, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. We're thinking of it in a metaphorical sense, in a spiritual sense, thinking about going to heaven. But for Abraham, it was a place. And for his descendants, it was a place to live. He was also chosen by God to have descendants that would be a special people. The children of Abraham, the Jews, were a special people to God. Listen to the book of Deuteronomy 26 and verse 18. Here's Moses. He's with the children of Israel right before they're going to cross over into the promised land. They're in the land of Moab, and here's what he says. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special 
people. Just as he promised that you should keep all his commandments. That means a lot to say, you're not ordinary people. You are a special people. But lest you miss the specialness, you've got to go to Galatians chapter 3. And we will tie together all this specialness of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You drop down to verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto your seeds as many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. You see, the specialness of Abraham was God selected Abraham for a special role. God selected the land in which he would place Abraham. God selected the descendants, the people. And what made them special was they were going to be the nation the family through whom Christ would come. Now I know why Abraham is such a blessing from Genesis chapter 12. In Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul would explain, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Now notice the last phrase of verse 16, who is the father of us all. You see, Abraham bears a unique relationship to all of us because through Abraham came the Christ and because of Christ no longer are just the Jewish people special. Now all people are special to God. Jew and Gentile alike. And we all enjoy the blessings. So Abraham was a special man. But Abraham had a special trait about him. The text from Genesis 15 and verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. He was a man of faith. Now, there are many passages which explicitly say Abraham believed. Abraham was a man, man of faith. Genesis 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Galatians 3 and verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, verse 17. These are not all of them. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Here is a man by faith. He lived his life like that. You know what many of us do? We're the kind of people that if we can see that what God has told us is right, we'll say, I'll do that. If it is th relates to things that we cannot see, Things where we have to depend upon God to give us the light to walk the pathway. We're like, I don't know. Do I do that or not? 
Abraham was a man who understood faith means taking God at his word even when you have no other proof by sight. But you know, the truth is, most of us have to see it in action to understand it. Somebody can tell you something over the telephone and you say, you plug A into B and then B into C and C into D and then you'll end up with A into D and then you will turn around and plug this and you're, by the time someone tells you that on the phone, you know what's going on in your mind? I'm confused. But you let someone show it to you, do it in front of you, and you can say, I can see that. Well, that's what I like about Abraham. Here's what really believing in God means. Imagine, and we've already read that when Abraham was told to go to leave his kindred, we may think here he was, reared in a family that were God-believing people, that were God-fearing folks, but that's not the case. Joshua 24, verse 2 says, And Joshua said to all the peoples, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. You see, back when they were in Ur of the Chaldees, they were idolaters. Imagine you being raised in a family that was Muslim. Imagine you yourself being raised in a family that were Buddhist. Imagine being raised in an agnostic family. And here God speaks to you and tells you to get up and to leave. What are you going to do? Say, well, who are you, Lord? But Abraham believed what God told him, confident of it. He believed that God would give him a place that he had never seen. Listen to Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place which he would after receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know, sometimes we focus on the Canaan land to which Abraham made his journey, his trek, if you will. But Abraham was looking for a much better place than that. He's looking for one that God made. And he said, well, I don't understand. Well, you drop down to verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who seek or say such things plainly declare that they seek for a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country out of which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to say, Abraham understood there was something beyond that physical land to which Abraham and his descendants went. 
Folks, that tells me that he's much more a man of faith than just the one who was looking for a land that he could see. And he believed God would provide him a child when he was past childbearing years. You know, if you ask if someone's expecting, you tend to find those who are in the 20-somethings, maybe the 30-somethings, occasionally the 40-somethings. But usually after that, you don't hear of many women conceiving or men fathering children. However, when you get to Abraham and Sarah, you're talking about two old folks. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him for whom he had believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls things which are not, or those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he might become the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so your descendants shall be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. You know, he's such an old man. You look at him and say, well, maybe he's already dead. Since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he was promised, he was also able to perform. When God said, Abraham, you're a hundred years old, and you and your wife, Sarah, are going to conceive a child, he thought, God can do that. Had he seen that done previously? No. But you see, Abraham is a man who has a special trait about him. Whatever God tells him, he believes it. Whatever God tells him to do, he does it. In Hebrews eleven twelve, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Hard to conceive of how many descendants there were of Abraham. Simply because God made a promise through one son, which would be Isaac, that all these people would be born. And he believed that God could take care of and would take care of any demand that he placed on him. God tells me what to do. Can I do it? Will I do it? If I do it, how will God complete what he said? In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac shall your seed be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham has his hand drawn, the knife in his hand, to take Isaac's life. For many of us, we would be thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this. This is my son of promise. This is the one whom God said, all my descendants will be born through. But he's going to take his life anyway. 
because he believed that if God said that, that whatever it took to bring that to pass, he would. And so he thought, if I take his life, God can bring him back. Folks, that's a man who trusts God at every turn in life. So he is a special man with a special trait who is given a special reward. And in fact, all of us can have that special reward. It was accounted to him for righteousness. I want to draw attention to some of the terms that are used here. Um, I want to do a little bit of background study for some other things, but I want you to notice the term accounted. The New King James uses the word accounted. The original King James uses the word counted. The American Standard uses the word reckoned, the new, and so does the New American Standard. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible uses the word credited. The New Testament quotes this in Romans 4, 9, 4, 22, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, and James chapter 2, verse 23. Same words. And the New King James, again, uses the word accounted. And I can show you there. He talks about his faith was accounted for righteousness. Romans 4, 9. Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. Galatians 3, 6. James 2, 23. And scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But if you're using your original King James, you will notice the word imputed. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. In the New Testament passage, the word imputed is used there. Let me talk about the word righteousness for just a moment. The lexical dictionary defines this as acting according to a proper standard, in this case God's standard, doing what is right, being in the right. One of the lexicons used an illustration which I thought was very well, and I've shortened it, but he pointed out that this is a legal word. And you have an instance here where, for instance, you would have three parties. Now, we tend to think you've got lawyers involved, but you have one man who has one side, another man who has another side, and then you have God as the judge. And the judge listens to this man present his side. He then listens to this person present their side. And then he renders a judgment, says, okay, this one is in the right and this one is in the wrong or vice versa. To use the word righteousness is to say that a person is in the right. They're the ones who are correct. That's the idea of this word. Now, if you read a lot, and some of you do, I know some of you read quite frequently, and you come back and you'll say, I, I read this word, and I don't know what this means. You'll hear people talk about imputed righteousness, infused righteousness, and imparted righteousness. Those are some, well, I think, confusing terms. The Lutherans and the Calvinists believe that the righteousness of Jesus was put on us to make us acceptable to God with the in emphasis on our inability as man to affect anything. 
In other words, we're born totally depraved. We're born without any ability to choose good whatsoever. And so what God has to do, he has to put first the righteousness of Jesus on us, his personal righteousness, in order for us to be acceptable. And their phrase is, we are thus saved or justified, and they use the term most often justification, by grace alone, through faith alone. Nothing you do has any part in it whatsoever. And so they would say his personal righteousness is imputed to or imposed upon man. But then you have the word infused righteousness. And this is a Roman Catholic doctrine. And the Roman Catholic doctrine is is that the righteousness of Jesus becomes a part of our character as a process which many other people would call sanctification. And they would say that it somehow becomes a part of who we are to the point where we choose the righteousness of God and thereby by choosing that we become righteous with the emphasis placed upon us, what we do. And then there's a third one called imparted righteousness. This is part of the Wesleyan, which ended up becoming the Methodist Church and the Nazarenes and part of the holiness movement. And they believe this is where a person can become righteous to a point that they attain sinless perfection. Holiness, complete holiness. And which leads me to say, don't confuse me. Tell me what the Bible says. Is the righteousness of God earned or is it accepted and applied? Do I somehow earn God's righteousness or does God give it to me? Is it all human or is it all divine? I mean, second question. Is the righteousness of God someone which... That's incorrect there. Is the righteous God something which one does or which one receives? Now think about it. Is the righteousness of God something I do or is it something that I receive? And what this does is it puts it on one side or on the other side. And here's my answer. It's both. And let me explain. It's not that one earns anything, but there must be obedience. So righteousness is something that one does. And you say, are you sure about that? Let's listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. And what shall I, more shall I say? For the time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jetha, also David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Worked righteousness is something that those men of faith did. Or you can go to Ezekiel 18, verses 20 through 26. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor shall the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. If I am responsible for my wickedness, then to some degree I am responsible for my righteousness. 
1 John 3, verse 7, the apostle writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. It's something I practice, something I do. So many people have missed that aspect. Matthew 5, verse 20. When Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever righteousness they had was not sufficient. What Jesus expects is, is that our righteousness exceeds theirs. If it's all of the divine nature, then there's nothing that I could do to change that. It would be foolish to deny that the Bible teaches that man must do something. On the other hand, no one is righteous enough on his own. There's never been a man born on the face of this earth other than our Lord Jesus Christ who was sinlessly perfect, whose righteousness was sufficient. Romans 3, 9 and 10. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one that's up here and that does not sin, that's perfectly righteous. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I've got to recognize, I can't say, look how righteous I am and say, that's what saved me. It was by his grace. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. One should not take the position, ever take the position, I have got to work so I can be able to earn my salvation. You cannot do that. Thus, one is justified by faith, but not by faith only. You see, I love passages of Scripture that when you start here, you make a full circle and you come all the way back. James 2, 23 and 24 actually quotes Genesis 15 and verse 6. And notice the full circle here. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. He's not saying that you don't have faith. Oh, you've got to have faith. You've got to have an active, obedient faith that appropriates the righteousness of God. And then God accounts, puts it down, writes it on your side. This one is righteous. 
James tells us that the blessing of Abraham resulted in a special designation. We read it there in James 2.24. He was called the friend of God. 2 Chronicles 27, Abraham, your friend forever. Isaiah 41, verse 8, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Do you have the same trusting, obedient faith of Abraham? You see, one of the reasons why my favorite passages are like these is because I see people like Abraham who got that designation, the friend of God. And you know, folks, that's really what we ought to be seeking to be, the friend of God. What a blessing that would be. If you'll take your songbook out now and let's prepare to sing the invitation song. What a blessing we've enjoyed to be able to study God's Word tonight. The power of God's Word is always inherent within it. That it's able to reach the minds of men and women, boys and girls, to make a change in who we are and how we live if we'll only let it be active in us. If you're not a Christian, we beg of you tonight to respond to the Lord's invitation to be a child of God. And you get there by being a person of faith, a person of penitence, a professing person, and then a person that is baptized for the remission of their sins. If you are a Christian and your life needs correction, this is an opportunity for you. Would you come as we stand together and sing?